American Social History Podcasts are a production of the American Social History Project, Center for Media and Learning at the City University of New York Graduate Center. Uh, my name is Josh Brown, and I'm the Executive Director of the American Social History Project Center for Media and Learning and a member of the history faculty here at the Graduate Center. I'm pleased to welcome you this evening to the first program in a series of three public panels called Still Hazy After All These Years, marking the sesquicentennial of the start of the American Civil War. Tonight's panel is entitled, Did the Real War Ever Get in the Books? Playing off of, for the umpteenth time I know, Walt, Walt Whitman's plaintive observation about the gap between the experience and the history of the Civil War. Each member of our panel of distinguished historians has one way or another, grappled with what has been included, excluded, overlooked, misinterpreted, and distorted in the record of the war. In the next hour or so, they will discuss their respective efforts to get the real war in the books and what they think has changed in the recent study of the Civil War, for better or for worse. Our second speaker is Gregory Downs, who is Assistant Professor of History at the City College of New York, a PhD from the University of Pennsylvania he is author of Declarations of Independence, The Long Reconstruction of Popular Politics in the South, 1861 to 1908, which is newly published by the University of North Carolina Press, which historian Scott Nelson has praised as, and I'm quoting Scott Nelson, brilliant, imaginative, and deeply researched, making us rethink the failure of reconstruction in the South. Greg is currently working on another book project called The Ends of the War, about the transition from war to reconstruction and about reconstruction as a problem of occupation. Now, Greg, I should add, is equally accomplished as a much-published writer of fiction. His collection of short stories, Spit Baths, won the Flannery O'Connor Award for short fiction. Josh asked us to begin by talking about the ways that uh, what we saw is changing, what's been going on, and maybe a little bit about what might be coming in the scholarship of the Civil War. And so for me, I decided that, uh, that I would do it, think about it in personal terms. So in September 2001, when I started graduate school, the broader field of Civil War and Reconstruction seemed both energized and fragmented. There was a great deal of excitement around the development of slavery and the slave South, as now classic debates between people like Eugene Genovese and the panel's own Jim Oaks were reconfigured by the near simultaneous appearance of Walter Johnson's Soul by Soul and two major works on colonial slavery by Philip Morgan and Ira Berlin, as well as bubbling projects on gender and slavery. And the field of emancipation was also obviously flourishing, with projects exploring the terms of freedom through paradigms of labor, ideology, and gender. And when it came to politics, there were new works on political culture using linguistic and gender analysis to try and reconstruct the meanings that people ascribe to politics at two particularly fraught moments, the secession crisis in the South by people like the panel Stephanie McCurry and Nancy Burkaw, and the campaigns to roll back reconstruction as analyzed by people like Laura Edwards and Glenda Gilmore and Jane Daly. And farther afield, there was the dim and alluring and disconcerting and somewhat frightening set of works starting to define the period through Western history and Indian history and the developments of the size and the capacity of the American state. And yet, despite all of these pockets of energy and excitement, there seemed to be little energy and excitement about the Civil War itself. While works continued to come out, few grad students and young scholars seemed to be wrestling with either the war, its immediate lead up, or its impacts in terms other than its impact upon emancipation. Now in part, this obviously stemmed from the problems of success. 
an extraordinary success, James M. McPherson's monumental battle cry of freedom, which seemed to resolve so many of the old arguments that there was no longer that much point in engaging with them within the world of scholars. Balanced, nuanced, yet also pointed in his claims, even dismissive at times with a, with a genial tone, McPherson's book in some ways put the field to rest. In a different way, the same was true about the canonical field of reconstruction, where Eric Foner's equally massive, nuanced, and yet also pointed work seemed to resolve an entire set of problems. So while a great number of scholars worked on emancipation and on worked on these topics, they didn't, the, the prospect of generating new arguments seemed distant. And so for all of the excitement about the periods before and after the actual war, the field was obviously failing to meet E.M. Forster's off-quoted injunction to only connect. The various literatures did not always or even often interact with each other, leading to a discovery and recovery model in which new work proclaimed the discovery of a new lost history and good work, hard research work, hard research work accumulated but did not seem to actually engage. For some, the, for me, for some, the problem with this is, was the implications for the oft-bemoaned decline of syntheses. For me, though, the problem was simpler. It was a problem of lack of analytical clarity. If we didn't have to measure our claims against other people's, then how could we actually make arguments about relative importance and prioritization? And so the field's analytic tool seemed weak, even if its methodological openness was vast. And additionally, the lack of engagement with the war left the field perversely disconnected from the single most significant moment of change in US history. What was a given to scholars of other, who weren't 19th century US historians, the war's transformative effect seemed to be peripherally and perversely offstage among young scholars in the field. And so from my limited perch as a graduate student, it seemed to me that the field needed to move toward engagement between the Civil War and the world the war made. Particularly, it seemed to me that the experience of wartime needed to be connected much more clearly to the political visions that emerged afterwards. So I investigated the way that wartime experiences with large Union and Confederate states transform people's view of the state. And in the process, I analyzed a realm of political behavior and belief that was stranger and more fantastic than we previously had room for. And among the odder outcomes of the war was a deep popular attachment to the state in particular forms as an embodied patron, a deliverer of, of favors, placing popular beliefs about politics in the context of competition for the scarce but suddenly real resources of suddenly visible states, changed our sense of what the war did, critiqued assumptions about the centrality of independence for structuring the politics of enfranchised Americans, explored the power of dependence upon the state in popular political culture, and cast new light on, a particular, on the particular ways that the making of a post-war politics structured around racial competition in the South in a long reconstruction. Additionally, it seemed vital to me um, though at the time relatively rare, to write histories that cut across racial lines, that explore the simultaneous intertwined development of white and black political beliefs. Too often scholars studied one or the other and then asserted distinctions in racial political culture that dissolved once one saw them side by side. The experience of the war had indeed fashioned a common set of political approaches and languages, but used, of course, to different ends by competing groups. And now, Nine and a half years later, things seemed to be quite different than they had been. The public emphasis upon the war itself in this, the 150th anniversary of the beginning, promises to direct attention back to the war, 
More significantly for scholars, a series of books over the last decade have sought to foster the kind of connections that seemed to be missing nine and a half years ago. Steve Hahn and others wrote across the Civil War, exploring the relationship of slavery, Civil War, and Reconstruction together. Eric Foner's recent work, placing Lincoln's actions in dialogue with the actions of slaves and facts on the ground, is part of a broader effort to connect high politics and social history, not just by asserting their simultaneous existence, but by exploring the ways they feed on and drive each other. And other works, including those published and underway by the members of this panel, Stephanie McCurry, Jim Oakes, and Bruce Levine, have argued for the centrality of understanding the war on new terms, through the power of the Confederate state to fashion a new politics among slaves, slaveholders, and white women, the interplay between union policy and slave escape, emancipation, and abolition, and the way that careful examination of ideology and social history can explain the extraordinary popular mobilizations of men into the armies. And there's a great deal of other exciting work that scholars are wrestling again with the Civil War. On the other hand, for all of these successes at connecting, successes that I'm sure are going to continue, there remains a distance between the canonical fields of sectionalism, Civil War, Reconstruction, and the work that is going on around it. The work on the American state continues to grow, strangely without much reference by them of the Civil War and Reconstruction, which is obviously the period of the greatest expansion of the American state, or much engagement by scholars of the Civil War and Reconstruction with the work that they're doing. More problematically even, the field is yet to engage with the kind of perspectives emerging from Western and Indian history. Here, some of the ideas are provocative and some are troubling. For example, Elliot West, in his last Indian War, proposed a suggestive reworking of the paradigms of the period, which he calls the Greater Reconstruction, a framework drawn not from within the terms that almost all of us work with, within the terms of our debate, but from implicit comparisons of the nation to others. He argues that we would be best served by building on the now traditional opening of the era with the Mexican War, one used by McPherson among others, but instead of moving quickly from the halls of Montezuma back to the east and the halls of Congress, as most Civil War historians do, he would have us frame the period around the enormous acquisition of land from Mexico, a landmass the size of Western Europe, and the internal political competition to govern this landmass. When one of these competitors losing secedes, the Union then faces the problem of establishing its control by his lights over three different defeated nations, the Confederate, the Mexican, and the Indian, which is in and of itself a whole series of different defeated nations. To do so, then the Union predictably seeks out allies by expanding the terms of its citizenship to freed people, to European immigrants, eventually to Indians with less success, and eventually to ex-Confederates. Pushed in these ways, the familiar era of Reconstruction would seem suddenly unfamiliar, a project of extension of sovereignty over frontier lands, like perhaps other contemporaneous expansions of Argentina and Brazil, which seem to be close up, high up in his mind. And the possibilities don't end there. At the same time, there were other ways, contemporaneous ways of seeing the contemporaneous ways of seeing the Civil War. Liberals across Latin America made the war a test of Republican theory. Representatives of Benito Juarez's government came to Springfield, Illinois, to propose to him the common struggle between Americans and Mexicans struggling against conservative landowning classes, planters in the United States, the Catholic Church, and Mexico. And as the war progressed, the terms of this comparison changed as the intervention of France into Mexico, the establishment of the ill-fated Mexican Empire, and the potential intervention of France, though never realized, of France and England into the US Civil War, created a discourse of a war of the worlds, almost literally, of an old world versus new, 
between the monarchical principle of Europe and the Republican theory of the Americas. And in fact, when you trace it, that the low points of Union success are exactly mirrored by the fall of the Mexican government, by assaults the, of Europe, Spain and France particularly, upon other governments, recolonization projects across the hemisphere, that in turn themselves largely collapse upon the success of the Union. Each of these frameworks is provocative and also troubling because they raise the possibility of interrogating the associations between the Civil War and the terms under which we think of American exceptionalism. At the very moment when contemporary, contemporaries saw the United States as like other nations, other Americans, and in a line that has been much more picked up by scholars and become standard in historiography, saw it as proof of the nation's distinctiveness. The Civil War continues to function in those terms and much, though not all historiography, is the instability that proved the United States would be forever stable. Ken Burns proclaimed this baldly even, I think, absurdly, when he, when he says, when he has uh, David McCullough say that the war was defined as a moment when Americans slaughtered each other, if only in order to make a country where they would not be able to imagine slaughtering each other again. But these frameworks open up a window not to embrace or dismiss exceptionalism, but to analyze the actual production of the stability of the American state, the true basis, I think, for exceptionalism, in the moment of its construction. The very vulnerability of the United States that all these people pointed to points us toward the question of why, in the aftermath of the Civil War, the great, what I think should be a great mystery of why it did not collapse, why the nation did not continue to experience cycles of civil wars and collapse. Now, if the potential payoff of asking these kind of questions is vast, there's also, or should be, significant problems for historians like those of us on the panel trained in the more canonical fields of sectionalism, civil war, reconstruction. For one thing, underneath them, though often not stated explicitly, um, lies a reorientation of the meaning of the war, and which means a step away from the canonical view, the fundamental view, that the war was fundamentally about slavery. And at some level, those of us who study this as well as others, reject the notion, react almost viscerally against the notion that the Catholic Church's holdings in Mexico or the monarchical resurgence of the Dominican Republic, however reactionary each might be, that we reject or react against the notion that that could be analogous to slavery. To that way lies the analogical slipperiness that makes every power relation a kind of slavery. And that way lies the dissolution of our ability to understand slavery at all. The fundamental argument that the war was about slavery is simultaneously in our literature omnipresent, but also strangely not often fleshed out. And in part, I think that it is because of the public role that many historians of the era rightly play. The presence of an active, public, indestructible, neo-Confederate view of the war that denies the basic nature that it was about slavery requires us all to assert, sometimes with enthusiasm and sometimes with a beleaguered fatigue, that the war was caused by slavery. Yet the very automatic nature of the response makes the point both settled upon and uninteresting and too often leaves our own ideas unfleshed. Instead of asserting what it means, too many times historians, though not to their credit the ones on this panel, simply assert it then flirt with their, their explanations, then return to safety. Our inability to engage with these other frameworks, then, I suspect, comes from a particular problem with the way that we think through our broad fundamentalism, which is that we accept not just the premise that the war was about slavery, but its sidecar, something snuck in at the time, um, something interesting, but not inherently true, not empirically true in the way that the fundamental premise is.
which is a presumption that the particular way that slavery caused the war lies in its roots as a contradiction that must be resolved. Here we move from a claim that arises clearly from the work in the period, slavery caused the war, to a claim that arises from and only makes sense within the production of a national narrative, that the only thing big enough to cause conflict was a contradiction, the resolution of which both reaffirms the essential, if contested, relationship between our nation and freedom, and also forecloses any future instability. The elimination of the contradiction then proves the future stability of the country, a problem quite unlike the particular problem that fundamentalism actually addresses, a problem not of politics but of character or essence across large times and spaces. But if we can disentangle our fundamentalism from the presumption of distinctiveness, then we also have the potential to do both our good work, good work, in asserting the centrality of slavery to the war, while also engaging more deeply with the question of what exactly this means. For in the big picture, it is these two possibilities are not inherently contradictory. The idea widely believed at the time that the United States might dissolve into other civil wars, as had most republics during this period, does not discount the idea that the civil war we did have was about slavery. And the idea that the US war is comparable to other republican struggles might complement our understanding of the precise ways that slavery caused it. But given the potentially perilous nature of these questions, in which any kind of deviation from a fundamentalist stance might seem to create the openings for the legions of falsehoods. It might seem alluring for the historians of the Civil War to simply ignore these potential, uh, these other areas of inquiry circulating, to continue going about their business, to continue getting it right. And I think this is especially alluring for historians of the Civil War who have to some degree an audience that's interested in it upon its own terms. But as alluring as this seems, I think it would be a mistake for two reasons. First, the energy exists out there in the field, in the broader world, whether we want it to or not, world of scholarship, whether we want it to or not. And ignoring it, being right, won't make it go away. And second, we have a chance to engage with it in ways that'll make it more effective, more grounded, more meaningful. Otherwise, we run the risk of becoming, once again, a segregated part of the field, set aside with its own little special topics, its own public audiences, but not really engaged with by the rest of the field of history. And this type of engagement that I'm suggesting then offers us the chance to sharpen our own analytic tools, to force us into a kind of productive engagement, to nudge us to continue the exciting work of the last decade or so, and to take seriously both our individual fields and our obligation to only connect. Thank you. <laughs>